Do you know your risk for breast cancer? Do you know what breast cancer screening is? Here's a hint, it's not just mammograms. We're talking about all of this and more in this week's Lady Parts Doctor podcast episode with breast surgeon, Dr. Monique Gary. But first. The Lady Parts Doctor podcast is a health podcast focusing on issues that affect women and those assigned female at birth. However, it is for everyone. This is our safe place to talk about things that matter to you, involving your spiritual, mental, and physical health. It's not medical advice, it's medical information. We talk and I give you the evidence with a little of my personal and professional experience sprinkled in. So sit back, relax, grab your water, coffee, tea, wine. I don't even have my water bottle today. (laughs) And let's go. Hello and welcome to the Lady Parts Doctor podcast. I am Dr. Stephanie Hack, the Lady Parts Doctor, and I am so happy to have you joining me today for this discussion because you know I love it when we chat and we always, I mean always have great things to talk about. My TEDx event is fast approaching and I am so excited. I'm still going through the process of rehearsing and preparing, but I'm really excited to share this message with you because it's very much in the vein of Lady Parts Doctor, speaking about women's health, but also giving you more information about how I got to this point and providing you with more information to really help you live your best, your healthiest life. So that's very exciting. Again, it is Thursday, October 12th in Bethesda, Maryland. If you are around, if that's something you're interested in, please come join me. I'd love to have your support, but also I really want you to be able to hear this message firsthand. You can see all of the information on the website, ladypartsdoctor.com. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Kyle Bukowski, the Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of Maryland, and that was a great, enlightening, and entertaining at points conversation to have about the evolution of complex family planning before and after the fall of Roe v. Wade. So really interesting, and as always, it's great to hear your commentary. This week, I'm speaking with another expert. We got two experts in a row, and I love my podcast collaborations. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And, you know, when October 1st hits, you start to see that pink everywhere. We see the pink ribbons for people in support, but also we see companies jumping on that pink ribbon bandwagon. And It's really important to just kind of go back and focus on why are we talking about breast cancer awareness and what is our ultimate goal with all of this pink. We're honoring those that we've lost to breast cancer. We're honoring those who have survived breast cancer. We are supporting those who are going through breast cancer journeys as we speak. We are reminding everyone about the importance of funding research to find better cures for breast cancer and better treatments for breast cancer. And also we are reminding ourselves to make sure that we get screened for breast cancer and that we know our risk. And I wanted to speak with an expert and we are doing that today, speaking with Dr. Monique Gary. Dr. Gary has a very, very impressive resume. She is a breast surgeon 
educator, entrepreneur, media personality, farmer, <laughs> and philanthropist. Yes, she is a farmer, and we're going to talk about that. Dr. Gary currently serves as the medical director of the Grandview Health Penn Cancer Network Cancer Program, where she also serves as director of the Breast Program. Like myself, she believes in the power of the connection between mind, body, and spirit to promote overall wellness, and she is passionate about addressing the disparities and health outcomes for marginalized people. So relax, get comfortable, and listen into this great conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Lady Parts Doctor podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Hack, and I am so excited to have a very special guest today, we have with us Dr. Monique Gary, also known as Dr. Mo. Welcome to the Lady Parts Doctor, Dr. Mo. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. I love the podcast. I'm excited to be here and chat with you today. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And we, we know that you are very busy and we appreciate your time. We're just going to get right into the questions. Okay. That's <laughs> that sounds good. So the first thing that I really want to know is, how did you become this amazing breast cancer surgeon? What brought you into this field? Wow. You know, I guess the honest answer is it picked me. Um, I, I watched my my mother uh, when I was a little girl. My, I come from a family of nurses. Let me start there and say mm -hmm. I come from a family of nurses. My mother worked nights at a nursing home. My grandmother was an LPN and she worked in the hospital where I was born. And um, I I knew I would go into to healthcare and into healing, uh, but my mom died when I was a little girl. I was seven years old. Oh my God. Yeah. My sister was 10 and I don't think she imagined that that's how her life would have turned out. And it turned out that she died of a really uh, horrible disease that I'm sure you have seen and diagnosed and treated. She died of ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm years old and she did not make it to her 30th birthday. It was a quick diagnosis. Oh my goodness. And, and from there it was palliative. And, you know, when you're seven, you don't realize that the last time you see your mom might be the last time you see your mom. But then my grandmother took us in, she got breast cancer uh, twice. So she got bilateral breast cancer. And each time some doctor told her, you know, she's got six months to live and start making your plans. And she says, mm -hmm. well, I don't have time to die because I have to raise these two grandkids. And one of them says she's going to cure cancer. So, you know, I, I, I got work to do and, and there's just no time for death. And I watched her advocate for herself and and, and it was really inspiring for me. That is um, inspiring. Yeah. And and so I knew I would go into to, to, to healthcare. I wanted to be a surgeon. And everybody kept saying, and I bet you've heard this too throughout your life. That's really hard. You're sure you mm -hmm. want to do that? You speak so well. You should go into journalism. Why don't you become a teacher? Why don't you, or all these other things is sort of, you know, even well-meaning, well-intentioned mentors would say surgery is really hard. Are you sure you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would always say, well, I can do hard things, mm -hmm. right? And and so I I continued through my training, even through medical school, with you know mentors who said things like, well, you don't look like a surgeon to me. And we continued to to press our way. And so I thought that I would uh, go into general surgical oncology. I wanted to kick cancers, but every chance I got, and I ended up matching into a breast surgery spot at uh, Georgetown. Okay. And it's a longer story. I'll tell you about another time <laughs> talking to mentees and trainees about scrambling and about, you know, ending up exactly where you're supposed to be. But I scrambled into a breast surgery spot. Did you really? Yes, I did not match for surgical oncology. Oh. Uh, and there were only there were 140 of us interviewing for 50 slots. 
So we knew 90 of us okay. were right? We, we, yes. we, there were two DOs that year that matched. One of them was like an astrophysicist and another one had a PhD in uh, something like bioengineering. Mm-hmm. So I, I called the Society of Surgical Oncology. I said, were there any breast programs that didn't fill? Because I really enjoyed breast surgery, but my male members were all like, you're going to be the breast doctor. You're going to be the breast. And I said, no, I'm going to do whatever I'm big and bad enough to do. Right. And, but I love breast surgery. I really, I enjoyed the cases. I enjoyed the patients. Mm-hmm made me feel a sense of satisfaction giving these women back their lives. And so when I didn't match for Serge Onk, I called the Society of Surgical Oncology and they said there were two programs that didn't fill, Texas Tech Amarillo and Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And I had a 30 minute phone interview after traveling all across the country for, for surgical oncology. I had a 30 minute phone interview for breast surgery at Georgetown and the director said, so you want the job or not? <laughs> There's something to be said for being where you're supposed to be and knowing that your feet, even though you're not entirely sure where they're taking you, that you're on that path and that it's moving you forward in the in the affirmative direction of your dreams and of your purpose. And, and that's my take on there. You are speaking my language. Oh, all of that. <laughs> all of that. I mean, you're so right. It shows you. And it's funny that you you end up exactly where you need to be. And that's inspirational. Okay, didn't I tell you that you were going to love this interview already? Like we are mm, just a couple minutes in and she is such a compelling storyteller sharing her story. It's inspirational, but there are also many other points that I want to bring up from this particular clip. First, just a little background explanation. So when you were trying to match, we call it, you come out of residency or you're coming out of medical school, but you know that you want to go into a particular program and there are only so many spots and there are so many people that want to take the spots. And so you go through this kind of grueling, stressful process of interviewing at all of the places where you're offered interviews for these slots. And then all of the information is put together. You rank where you want to go. They rank who they want to accept into their program. And then the computer figures all of it out and everybody's supposed to get their top choices. And if you didn't make your way into that top choice at that institution where you wanted to train or have your fellowship, then you do not match and then you scramble, which is what she said. And scrambling is you're just trying to figure out, okay, what's left? What spot can I scramble into? (laughs) That is, and you know, sometimes you are not the only person that's trying to get that slot. So I just wanted to give some background information um, about that. And regarding ending up exactly where you need to be, I know you can identify, you can relate to that, right? Sometimes in life, there is something that you really want, you don't get it, and you're disappointed, but somehow still you end up exactly where you need to be. Or in a moment, you're somewhere and you're really just kind of disappointed with where you are in that time. Maybe you're overwhelmed, you're frustrated, but somehow you still end up where you need to be. And another point that she mentioned there is that she always liked breast and breast surgery. And she kind of shied away from that. She felt like her colleagues were always saying, oh, you're going to be the breast person. You're going to do this. And then there's sometimes in life things that we are good at, things that we like, but we feel like because everybody else is saying that's what you're supposed to do. Oh, I know you're going to do that. It makes us feel some type of way like, okay, no. I'm going to do something else. Don't try to typecast me as the person that does this thing. 
but you still need to do that thing because you're excellent at it. You do it very well. I felt like that with OBGYN, but anywho, those are just like two of the many, many nuggets that are going to be shared throughout the rest of this episode. Now back to the show. I love that. So, so here you are. Doing right. What else should I be doing but helping set up high risk programs, but talking to people about hereditary cancer testing, mm-hmm. right? And helping to take back a little bit of what cancer took from me. And and I love it. I can't believe that I get to do this job. I go to work every day. So grateful. That's. I mean, that's a blessing. And to feel like that, and to have that passion, that passion, and that zest for what you do. So with that said, you've been practicing for many years, and I kind of mentioned this to you before I started recording. I always love to have people in their field explain what happens when someone is referred to you, because people think that you go to the OBGYNs because we do breast exams, because we refer our patients for mammograms and MRIs and to geneticists if they need, um, if they are a concern for being higher risk. But we do not, like once something is abnormal, as OBGYNs, we send the patients to you. Can you explain to our listeners what happens when they come to you? Absolutely. So the first thing that happens, and I love it when GYNs send patients early for things like breast pain. And even though all breast surgeons are not the same, let me just say, but for risk assessment, you've got family history for imaging that's sort of equivocal. And they say, well, let's see it again in six months. Like those consults are really important to me because it gives me a chance to establish relationship with patients. It gives us a chance to go over all that family history. It gives us a chance to go over the imaging. We get to go through the breast exam together. And now you're kind of locked into a program of risk reduction and surveillance. And that to me is a great place to be for women who have dense breasts, who have strong family history, for people who just, you know, you go to the doctor and they're like, okay, you got dense breasts, see you later. But there's an opportunity to explore what that looks like, Mm -hmm. how much where is it? What do we feel? And so even the consults that aren't cancer and the referrals that aren't cancer are so valuable to me, but I get to see these patients after abnormal imaging. You know, if you get a mammogram or an ultrasound that says, you know, you need a biopsy, sometimes Mm -hmm. I will see patients before that biopsy and we'll go over what that biopsy is going to be, especially if it's super suspicious and we think it's a cancer, I'll start preparing that patient and laying the groundwork. Who are you bringing back with you? If this is a cancer, here are some of the things we're going to be thinking. It may likely be early stage based on the size, or we may need to do more studies like an MRI, or we're going to get into that family history and do some genetic testing. So I I like to always sort of have patients prepared for what could be coming down the pike. Now you might be wondering, okay, so what are dense breasts? Are my breasts dense? (laughs) Breasts contain a lot of different tissue. Breasts contain glands. They contain connective tissue. They contain fat. So there's glandular tissue, connective tissue, and fatty breast tissue. And the term breast density is used to describe the relative amount of these different types of breast tissue when you see them on a mammogram. For dense breasts and dense breast tissue, there is a relatively higher amount of glandular tissue and fibrous connective tissue than fat. And some groups are more likely to have dense breast tissue, like black women are more likely to have dense breasts than white women. Dense breasts are also 
fairly common. And nearly half of all women who are 40 and older, which is usually when we start recommending mammograms for people who are at an average risk, nearly half of all women who are 40 and older and get mammograms are found to have dense breast tissue. And that's according to the National Cancer Institute. One thing to know about dense breasts is that you won't necessarily feel that on self-exam. You won't feel that on self-exam, nor will your doctor feel that on a clinical breast exam, but it is something that you can see on a mammogram because you're able to really see the different types of tissue and compare the types of tissue that you have in your breasts. Another thing that Dr. Mo mentioned is the equivocal imaging. The equivocal imaging means you see something and you can't really say if it's bad or if it's good or if it's just a finding. So you call it equivocal. And those kind of findings are followed over time because sometimes we just need a little more time to see if this is something that is going to get worse on imaging, if it's going to go away, or if it's something that's just going to be the same. So that appointment with me before biopsy is a, is a preparatory one. After the biopsy, if cancer has been found, there's a lot of hugs, there's a lot of reassurance, and then there's a lot of time spent explaining things in ways that people can understand. I tell my patients I talk in food because people know food. And so I have a whole set of random measurements in my head that are sort of like, you know, it's about the size of a blueberry, or this one might be the size of a frozen pea, or this feels like, you know, a popcorn kernel, or, you know, various food analogies. I use a sugar cube, sometimes a crouton, a small salad crouton versus a fancy restaurant crouton. If I say centimeters, this is Ruth's Chris, you know, steakhouse. This is the fancy salad crouton here. And immediately they know what it is and they get a sense of the size but they also laugh mm -hmm. right and that part to me I, I absolutely love that because you know the beauty of early detection and of all these modalities is that we're finding cancers earlier and earlier and we are mm -hmm. not statistics and just because you watch your mother or your grandmother go through it doesn't mean that their cancer is your cancer this is similar to OBGYN in that we use a lot of food references to help give patients an idea of how large or how small something is. For example, pregnancy. You might have heard us say, oh, right now the baby's about the size of a gummy bear or an avocado or a grapefruit. Same thing for fibroids. We describe the same thing. Oh, this grapefruit size fibroid is about 10 centimeters versus this one's about the size of a grape or something like that. So I thought that was a really great analogy and also the fact that it does make you laugh by using not necessarily the ones that we use, but by using all the kind of random food references. And that is a great attitude to have, especially when you're talking about something like cancer that could otherwise make you feel very fearful, but by approaching it with a kind of lightheartedness and by acknowledging for her patients that this is not a death sentence because this is a narrative that you've seen other people experience. You've seen their stories. This doesn't have to be your story, even if it was your mother or your grandmother or your sister and so on and so forth. So I love that she really kind of gets to the root of that because frankly, that is what people are afraid of. Is this going to happen to me? Let's keep going. We start out reassuring and, you know, we take as much time as we need to make sure that you understand what you have, what your options are, 
what the next steps are, and then what's our plan, what's our surgical plan, and and we kind of go from there, and nobody leaves until everybody gets it. Mm. That's perfect. I, I love how you set them up for the mindset shift because, you know, we know in OBGYN as well, when people like when you get that abnormal result, your brain automatically goes for the worst. And if you are constantly thinking and worrying about the worst outcome, you are not setting yourself up for success. <laughs> True, but it's like a bomb goes off and you can't hear anything. You watch those war movies, you know, and the bomb goes off and the, the soldier can't hear anything and everybody's talking around them. It's like that when you hear that word cancer. Yes. Able to hear much else. And now patients can access things in their portal. So I'm right. prepping for what they might read in their portal and letting right. them know. We're going to go through line by line. If you read something and you don't know what it means, don't freak out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the last thing I do in these appointments, whether they're cancer appointments or not, I always talk about prevention and wellness and nutrition and sort of what should you be looking for at home? Because it's great to understand everything in that doctor's office. But when mm -hmm. you leave at home, if you don't know what to watch out for, or you don't know what to do with yourself, or you don't know what resources to use or what questions to ask, that's when the panic and the fear start setting in again. Right. And then we get on that kind of spiral. And, you know, as I know that you also agree with, but that mind, body, spirit connection, you know, that the really the mind and the spirit are the foundation and they are going to manifest in our bodies. So we don't want people to just instantly focus on that very negative Thing. We're trying to make you healthy. We need you to focus on being healthy um, instead of focusing on that negative outcome. So I love that explanation. I'm right there with you. And that's so true. Once you get that abnormal result, it's really hard to think about anything else. And so our job during that process is to provide you with as much information and knowledge and just try to ease some of your anxiety as you continue to go through the evaluation process and figure out where you stand, if there's something concerning like cancer and what the next steps are. Along those lines, women who come to you before the biopsy, but they just have like a benign breast concern. Should women with benign breast issues you know, I know the answer, some of the answer to this, I know you'll have a more detailed explanation, but should women with benign breast issues be concerned about an increased risk of breast cancer later on? So yes, even if you have benign findings, I think it's important for you to know what does benign mean, right? And so mm -hmm. a woman comes and they fill out my little questionnaire and then they say, oh, I had a biopsy, you know, in 2013 and it was benign. Okay, but do you know what it was, mm -hmm. right? What was were, were, what were the cells? Was it atypia? Was it you know radial scar? Was it a fibroadenoma? Was it just dense breast tissue? Because there are varying degrees of risk associated with some of the benign proliferative things. It's not cancer, but something's growing, mm -hmm. right? So that puts you at a slightly higher risk level. And then if we factor in your family history, well, then you might be at higher risk still. And so you might fit into this category of high risk. And many times I'll use a risk calculator or tool to help quantify that risk. Mm -hmm. you know, it's one thing when you look at the, the screening guidelines uh, for mammography in particular, you know, it says that for women at average risk. Mm -hmm. So how do you know if you're at average risk? 
Has anyone ever really sat down and done a risk assessment with you? And so one of the great tools I like to use, there's a couple different risk models. Gale model, of course, is one of them, but there's one called Tyrocusic. The Tyrocusic risk model takes into account any biopsies you've had, when you started your period, when you went through menopause, did you have hormone replacement therapy, how many years, it takes cousins, grandparents, um, it takes into account, uh, even the version eight now takes into account breast density. Because density oh, okay. is right. a risk factor for breast cancer. And so it puts all of that into an algorithm and it spits out a number that says your 10-year and your lifetime risk for breast cancer is this. And your risk of a BRCA mutation is this, because if you have family history, you know, mm -hmm. right. and second, first, second, and even third degree relatives. So I love to do that with patients because we really get granular into the details. And it's mm -hmm. like, hey, talk to me about Uncle Johnny. All right, but Uncle Johnny, did he have any daughters? Did anybody have breast cancer? How old were they? Anybody have ovarian cancer? And so it's one of the more comprehensive ones. Um, so yeah, the, to, to come in for a landing here, even if you have a benign finding, if you have dense breasts, if you have some family history, if you've had prior biopsies, you could be at elevated risk. And you might want to see somebody like me just to see where you fall in that risk spectrum and make sure you're getting the right imaging for your level of risk. This is a great time to talk about breast cancer risk. So what is average risk versus what is high risk? Average risk is about 12%. One in eight women will develop breast cancer over their lifetime. So that's 12% of women. So a 12% risk of developing breast cancer is considered average. Anything higher than 20% or 20% or higher is considered higher risk or high risk for developing breast cancer. The CDC has a great listing of risk factors and it's further broken down into risk factors that you cannot change and risk factors that you can change. So let's start with the risk factors that you cannot change. Number one, getting older. Our breast cancer risk increases as we age. Many cancer risks increase as we age. Most breast cancers are diagnosed after the age of 50. Number two, genetic mutation. So you heard Dr. Mo talk about BRCA, BRCA1 and BRCA2, and those are inherited changes or mutations in certain genes that increase the risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Number three, reproductive history. So starting periods earlier in life, so before the age of 12, and starting menopause later in life after the age of 55, cause women and people who have been assigned female at birth to be exposed to hormones longer in life, which increases their risk of getting breast cancer. Number four, having dense breasts, as we also discussed. Dense breasts have more connective and glandular tissue than fatty tissue, and so sometimes that can make it hard to identify any tumor abnormality on a mammogram. Number five, a personal history of breast cancer or certain non-cancerous breast diseases. Number six, family history of breast or ovarian cancer. Your risk for breast cancer is higher if you have a mother, sister, daughter, or first-degree relative, or multiple people in your family on either side who have had breast or ovarian cancer. There are some genetic mutations that we are aware of, like BRCA1 and BRCA2, but some of them we have yet to discover. But we know that if you have that family history, you're at a higher risk. Number seven, 
previous treatment using radiation therapy. So if you've had radiation therapy to the chest or breast in the past for something like Hodgkin's lymphoma before the age of 30, you're at a higher risk of developing breast cancer later in life. And exposure to the drug DES, diethylstilbestrol. And that was given to some pregnant women in the U.S. between 1940 and 1971 to prevent miscarriage. But Later in life, they found that women who took DES had a higher risk of getting breast cancer, and women whose mothers took DES while pregnant with them may also have a higher risk of getting breast cancer. Now let's talk about the risk factors that you can change. Physical activity. Women and people assigned female at birth who are not physically active have a higher risk of getting breast cancer. Number two, being overweight or being obese after menopause. People in those categories have a higher risk of getting breast cancer than those who are at a healthy weight. Number three, taking hormones. Certain forms of hormone replacement therapy, those including estrogen and progesterone, taken during menopause can raise the risk for breast cancer when taken for more than five years. There's a study that you might often hear us refer to called the Women's Health Initiative. And the women who only took estrogen because they did not have a uterus and did not require progesterone did not have that elevated risk. Number four, reproductive history. Having the first pregnancy after 30, not breastfeeding, and never having a full-term pregnancy can raise your risk of breast cancer. And number five, drinking alcohol. Some studies have shown that a woman's risk for breast cancer increases with the more alcohol she drinks. You can find this list of risk factors on CDC's website, and I will also put it in the blog associated with this episode. Other risk factors associated with breast cancer not included on this list include prior breast biopsy with specific pathology, specifically atypical hyperplasia or lobular carcinoma in situ, certain ethnicities because they have an increased risk of the BRCA mutation, specifically in Ashkenazi Jewish women, and smoking. I love that. And you made a point before and you're like, uh, you said that not all, not all, of course we know, not all physicians are the same. So there are those people that we say, all right, go see the doctor. And the doctor is like, why are you sending me this patient? This patient is fine. But my personal feeling is, in line with what you're saying, just go, mm-hmm. you know, just go. It doesn't really matter what that person's opinion is or how they feel like you are going to get assessed for your own health needs. So if you do not have access to a Dr. Mo, still go. Don't be concerned about what that person's going to say about you seeking. Um, we're often worried about, oh, maybe I don't need this. Maybe I'm doing too much. You're not doing too much. You're assessing your risk. You are taking care of yourself and you are practicing preventive measures, which is what we want you to do. What, what five things would you like women to know about breast cancer and breast cancer screening? Oh boy, five things. Uh, or not five, but what things? What, what are, are the, the key things? Right. Yes. What are the things? Uh, so key things. One, um, you got to know your risk because the screening guidelines say for people at average risk, mm-hmm. and all people here is start mammals at forty. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to know that you could be at elevated risk. And if you don't know your family history, you need to have some really candid conversations with people's and myself and my family include, like, I didn't know what my mother died from till I was almost 29 years old. Cause it was a horrible thing in our family and nobody mm-hmm. wanted to, 
ovarian but it was a super rare cancer, less than 1% mm-hmm. of the population gets ovarian cancer and you automatically meet criteria for genetic testing. Right. So based on that, I got tested for BRCA1 and 2 and, you know, all the other genes eventually. And, <clears throat> and so you got to know that family history to know if you're average risk. Two, you should know your breast density. There are categories of density. And they tell you on the bottom of the mammogram on the report, category A, B, C, or D. Density is like, um, I, I'm old. I, I use console TVs, those big floor model TVs. My granny had one. And then when it broke, they put another one on top of it. It became <laughs> furniture. But the static or the snow on a TV screen is the density. And the more static you got, the harder it is to see the picture. And so there are categories of density. So if your density is category D, you got more than 75% snow on the screen, then you might meet criteria for supplemental imaging like ultrasounds. Mm. And if you have family history, now you're looking at maybe MRIs. So you got to know your family history, got to know your breast density and so that you can know that screening is more than just a mammogram. Mm-hmm. There's a process that goes into screening. And we often conflate them just like, well, we'll ask for a tissue and we'll say we want a Kleenex, mm-hmm. Right. But a, a tissue can be more than a Kleenex brand and screening can be more than a mammogram. Uh, four, despite what statistics say, the outlook for breast cancer, even for black and brown women, especially, and I'm talking to, to our sisters who might be watching this podcast, you know, mm-hmm. listen, the, the outcomes are better than they have been. And, and ch- the chance for us to live is still very, very great. And I need for people to know that. The next thing I think that's really important for folks to know is to know yourself. You have to know your own body. And Mm -hmm. even though some of the guidelines don't say, you know, that you should do your breast exam or that self-breast exams are not as helpful, how many of us know somebody who felt a lump Mm -hmm. in between their mammogram cycles? Those are called interval breast cancers. And when we find a mammogram, and when we find a cancer that happens in between your screening cycles, those cancers can be a bit more aggressive. And so it's important for you to practice what we call self-breast awareness, not just feel it on the first, right? Not mm-hmm. just after your period. You should know how they feel on the first, the 15th, and the 30th. Mm-hmm. You should know if you're having breast pain and when that breast pain is and you know what's cyclic for you and what's your normal and we have to normalize that our breasts are going to change they are a living part of us and as we age as we approach perimenopause some of us as we approach menopause you know we we have to know and normalize the changes in our breast um the last thing i'll say is that yes men do get breast cancer hashtag check your chest Mm-hmm. Anybody who has mammary glands, two mm-hmm. sets or more, some people have more, you've got to know that you have to check those. And e- even it includes our, our non-conforming and non-binary and, and, mm-hmm. and our trans community as well. There is an increased risk for breast cancer in certain individuals. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, really get to know your body and pause for that cause and know what your level of risk is. And so that means having a really detailed conversation with your gynecologist who's going to sit down and say, you know what, let's go through your risk factors and let's make sure that we get the right screening for you. What is breast cancer screening? Breast cancer screening involves a combination of breast self-examination, breast self-awareness, clinical breast examination, and imaging, whether that be mammogram, 
or MRI. And it's some combination of that through shared decision-making, meaning a conversation that we have with you about your risk and what our recommendation is and what you would like to, or how you would like to proceed. There are multiple different recommendations about when that screening should begin, how often you should undergo that screening. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has guidelines that OBGYNs generally adhere to. The recommendation for clinical breast examination is that we offer it every one to three years for women between the ages of 25 to 39 years and annually for women 40 years and older. I generally would just check the breasts of my patients whenever they would come in for an annual exam, starting at their just annual visit. So if they came in at 18, I would offer them a breast exam. And for me, I always felt that that was a good way to get people thinking about their breasts and to get an idea of what their breasts are like before their period or after their period. For all ages, sometimes you would find cysts and things that maybe someone hadn't felt before. And it was just a good idea to get them thinking about doing their own exam and a great time to teach them how to do their own exam. The recommendation by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists for mammography is offering it starting at the age of 40. And if you start it between 40 and 49 years old, you'd start that after counseling if the patient desires it, but that they should at least begin by 50. For mammography screening, we recommend that you do it every one to two years. Again, that depends on your risk and shared decision-making. And then finally, the recommendation for when you should stop mammography would be continuing until age 75 years old. And then after 75, that's going to again be shared decision-making based on really the discussion about your health status, your longevity, and your expected years of life. And I would always bring into my into the conversation with my patients, okay, so If you had breast cancer and you needed to have surgery, for example, is that something that you would be willing to do? If you're 83 and you say, you know what, I would not want to do that, I would not do that, then it might be a good time to stop doing mammograms. It's so important that you mentioned that despite what we hear, because, you know, breast cancer awareness month comes and then what people hear is, you know, that black women are dying from breast cancer at an alarming rate compared to the white counterparts. And you just hear doom, doom, doom. I know in medical school, I feel like we just started to have a running joke. Like they would say, this thing is bad. And you're like, just wait, it's coming, it's coming. And then for black people, it's worse. (laughs) Sadly. For breast cancer, it is the same. And I'll be quite <laughs> candid with you. The numbers are disturbing. They are. And and the guidelines have not changed in response to this because they keep saying there is insufficient evidence to say that we should start getting mammograms earlier. There's insufficient evidence to say that women who have dense breasts and Black women have 30% greater breast density on average, mm-hmm. women who have dense breasts should get ultrasounds or MRIs. There's insufficient evidence. Well, when are we going to get the evidence, Right. Because if it's all retrospective, if we keep looking backwards, trying to walk forwards, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing here, right? Right, and right, so right. The last part of it is we really do have to participate in the trials. And there are clinical trials, not just for cancer, but also for screening, looking at making sure that we're getting the right screening. There's a great trial called the Wisdom Study. Okay. And people who don't have cancer, 
and they are inviting women to participate. And the study entails doing some genetic testing and they're looking at segments of the genes to see if your genes are upregulated. And if those genes are upregulated, maybe you should get screened twice a year. Or if your genes are severely downregulated, maybe you should get screened every other year. And so they're really looking at trying to develop a personalized approach to screening. And that's a great trial that people who don't have cancer can participate in, but we gotta be counted. There's this misnomer that black people and black women, especially, you know, don't want to be a part of clinical trials that we're not interested in partnering with science and medicine. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. You know, we've not always been willing participants. We haven't always been volunteers. We've been voluntold, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and it's a huge part of maybe why there's some mistrust. But I think that putting that aside, we're at a point in our lives where COVID has shown us that we don't have to save ourselves. Right. And I was happy that Dr. Mo mentioned that despite the negative things that we hear about breast cancer, that the outcomes are improving. Now back to what she was saying about the wisdom study. You can find information on thewisdomstudy.org. That's thewisdomstudy.org. If you're interested in learning more or enrolling in this study, it is a partnership of breast health doctors, researchers, patient advocates, community leaders, and women from all neighborhoods who share one common goal, to revolutionize the way breast cancer is detected and risk is reduced. They're working together to determine the safest and best way to detect breast cancer. The study compares two approved screening approaches, annual mammograms for all women starting at the age of 40, or a personalized approach to breast cancer screening that is based on the woman's individual risk factors for breast cancer, based on the things we already discussed, like breast density, genes, and family health history. And that involves, that means getting involved. It means caring about what we put into our mouths. I have seen more soft life self-care posts. I have seen more Black people in <laughs> therapy. I have seen folks in yoga, acupuncture, meditation, all the places and spaces that we thought weren't for us, we up in there. <laughs> I'm loving it. We care. And it matters because we're taking this whole body approach seriously. Yes. And, you know, we, <laughs> I'm still laughing at the way you said that, but yes, we are there. And I think we, we have a better understanding of we are worthy and we deserve these things. Like these things aren't just for other people. We deserve uh, this, this healthy lifestyle and these other healthy choices. So continuing on that thought that you kind of touched upon, can you share some of your philosophy about the mind body spirit connection as it relates to breast health and just health in general? Absolutely. Um, the first thing is that, of course, the mind, body, and spirit are connected. And the ways in which they are connected is that, you know, I tell a patient when I take you to surgery, I do you no service by removing this tumor if I have not removed, number one, the other impediments to wellness in your life. Okay. And two, some of the things that might have precipitated this, like, can we talk about smoking? Can we talk about alcohol intake? Can we talk about stress mm -hmm. at night? You know, uh, talk to me about your 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 relationships and your job. Can we talk about these life stressors that are contributing disease? And so um, I think it's important for people to know, and I have really come to embrace this as part of oncology at a time when it didn't really seem as connected. And, and many of our colleagues, you know, said, well, there's no evidence for that. There's no data to support right. 
things. And now all that data is starting to emerge, the things we already knew, that food is medicine, that mm-hmm. stress, you know, causes elevated cortisol, it causes, um, uh, it, it causes insulin resistance, it causes inflammation in the body and all those things, right, contribute to, to cancer, right? That poor nutrition and not moving our bowels can can lead to to gut issues and that that gut microbiome, right? What happens in your intestines plays a role in your breath. Who knew? Well, we did. The body, mind, the body's all connected. Connected. (laughs) Just like COVID, we learn what happens in the North. The air you breathe in the North, you're going to breathe it in the South. Right. Mm-hmm. What happens eventually makes its way west. Same thing with our bodies. What happens? This is a unit. It's a system. And all of those things impact cancer risk and not just the risk of developing, but how we go through that journey, how we recover. Can we stay on therapy? Can we get through treatment and recover a little bit faster, have a little bit more energy? And can we have a transformative experience. You know, I really invite patients to consider cancer a transformative life experience that of course it is, right? It is, of course. How how are we going to transform it? How are we going to change this? And how are we going to use this to make life better? This is our tipping point, you know, Max, Mm -hmm. um, well, Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell, you know, talks Mm -hmm. about uh, the, the tipping point and cancer is a tipping point for a lot of us. So what are the other cancers that we need to get rid of? And let's make that list and let's start, let's go. Mm, and you- <laughs> if patients come back and see me, you know, year uh-huh. two, five years later and I'm like, okay, you stopped smoking. Okay. You lost weight. Oh, you dropped 170 pounds. Really? That, 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 that husband, that husband, that partner, that, you know, that job, those stressors, like it's the, first time when you get license and permission to put yourself first and there's a blessing in that despite the despite the c word you are not just your body you are not just your mind you are not just your spirit you are all of these things working together in harmony to live your healthiest life and i love whenever i get to have a conversation with someone especially a physician a healer of this type who understands that it makes for a really great conversation and one that will really benefit you. Continuing with that, can you talk a little bit about the farm and how the farm comes into play? Sure. So patients ask me a couple questions, you know, you get diagnosed and, you know, as as people of color, black people, we have always believed that our medicine is in the earth. It's part of, I think, uh, our, our, our DNA and our birthright. And we might not have known how it is, but we have always believed that it is because we've been told that it is. And it's something in us that it resonates with, but we're not the only people that have believed that in everyone is truly searching for how to help the body heal itself. Yes. We're all looking for, right? You get diagnosed. They want to know, am I going to die? Do I need chemo? Mm -hmm. And then what can I do? What should I be eating? How can I change my life? How can I do this holistically as best as I can Mm -hmm. to avoid those things and to keep this from happening again and keep it from happening to my family? And and so in pursuit of those answers, um, I started looking for a place where patients could come and figure it out. And so Still Rice Farm is a 39 acre, I call it a living learning laboratory. And it, it is a place where people can come, you know, with cancer and chronic illness. We've had young people come out from uh, the city camp, Jill Scott, the kids came and, and spent a day exploring what wellness means to them. And they did fishing and nature walks and ecotherapy and they picked berries and, you know, mm-hmm. a chance to the cancer patients will come. And we just had one last weekend in the rain and the typhoon, um, but 45 women showed up in 
torrential downpour from as far as Washington, D.C. and New York City, and they wanted to know how to live a better, healthier life. So we did cooking classes and demonstration. They uh, made their own inspirational bookmarks. We had a steel drummer come and play some Caribbean tunes and, and she brought the sunshine. We did yoga and meditation. We talked about healing our trauma. We talked about sex and intimacy and mm -hmm. you know how to get it back and how to love this body when you didn't love it before breast cancer. And now, right, now all this has happened. How do you tap into that self-love and what does it look like? And so the farm is, uh, is a place for patients to come and experience those things. I've been here for about two years and our main crop is wellness because we don't have a lot of other crops. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also planting seeds of wellness. If that's the yes. only thing from this place, I'll be happy with that. It's not a place where we're going to grow corn and sell it at the farmer's market. I mean, we might, you know, we might have a little vineyard over there. Ah, but that's not your mission. That's not your goal. Well, your primary goal. <laughs> See, wellness and community garden so that we can do some CSA. We feed people because food insecurity is real and food is expensive. That's yes. the thing, right? Everybody's like, oh, eat good food and, you know, eat healthy and do yoga. It costs money. And so we're trying to do it at cost, at no cost. You know, we want to make it free. Um, and so we get sponsors where we can and we invite women to come at least quarterly and do these experiential learning classes. But we're building a community garden right now so that we can feed people all year long because we have the land, we have the seeds. We just need some volunteers to come out and work the land. And, you know, we can all learn together what wellness looks like and feels like for us because it's not prescriptive, you know? And I feel like social media makes it that way like it's like okay you know you take this type holy hot yoga remember for a while it was all right. hot yoga. Mm -hmm. then the goat yoga and then when it wasn't that it was something it was sea moss right it, all right it's still sea moss but how, so how can people find you because i know we're running low on time but i want to make sure they can find you where can they find you okay so you can find me on all social media outlets uh except for um clubhouse I, I don't I'm on that one. Um, I might be on that one actually. Um, but on on LinkedIn, Dr. Monique Gary, on Insta, Dr. Monique Gary, on uh Facebook, Dr. Monique Gary, Twitter, Dr. Monique Gary. I even have a YouTube. So you can find me. Of course, my website, drmoniquegary.com. Uh, my farm is still Rise Farm. We have our own Instagram page. It needs a little loving. So, you know, go post some fun things for us. Um, and uh and we're around and we want to hear from people, we want volunteers and supporters. And uh, we're looking forward to really making this a movement, right? It's time for cancer care and integrative wellness for those two things to marry in sickness and in health, as mm. you said, said it earlier, right? Like mm -hmm. we want to partner in sickness and in health. Wasn't that a great interview? I told you that was a great interview. And my Podcast collaborations are some of my most favorite episodes. So you caught all of Dr. Gary's information there, but if you missed her information, you will be able to find her and you can currently find her on my website, ladypartsdoctor.com, under the podcast guest section. You will see a list of all of the Lady Parts Doctor podcast guests, and you will also see Dr. Gary there with a link to her website. You will not be able to find an updated link to the farm website. However, 
If you have a question or concern or you want to volunteer, you can reach out to Dr. Gary and her team. I'm sure we'll get all of your information to be able to have you be able to come out and help and support that mission. And it is an amazing mission. With that said, you also know where to find me. You can find me at my website, ladypartsdoctor.com. And if you have a story, an idea, or something that you really think we need to talk about on ladypartsdoctor.com, I have a comment was made for menopause, and I know we need to talk about perimenopause and menopause. If you have something that you want to talk about, a story, whatever that may be, you can always email me at drhack, D-R-H-A-C-K, at ladypartsdoctor.com. You can also send me a message on uh, Instagram. You can send me a message via threads. I'm on Twitter. Now I have to start naming all of my places. YouTube, um, there's, oh, Facebook. I'm like, there's one I'm forgetting, but I'm in all the places. You'll also be able to see them on the website. So before we go, make sure to subscribe to the website. If you are enjoying this podcast, if you're enjoying this episode, make sure to leave a review because it's reviews like yours that let people know that this is a podcast that will be helpful and entertaining for them. Before you go, I will leave you with this affirmation because here at the Lady Parts Doctor podcast, we know that words have the power to heal and to hurt, but we use words to heal. I radiate positivity and health, knowing that a healthy lifestyle contributes to breast health. One more time, I radiate positivity and health, knowing that a healthy lifestyle contributes to breast health. All right, go have an amazing week and we'll be back next week. Until next time.